One of the difficult things about finding and following God in your everyday circumstance is I think everybody on earth tends to evaluate God's character, God's wisdom, God's very presence by how their circumstances are going at the moment. How many times have I arrived at the scene of, of tragedy and heard people wailing? I now understand it as a cry for help and not yet a crisis of faith, but people are are wailing and asking themselves and sometimes asking me as a pastor, where is God in all of this? Have you been there? The inevitable pull of my heart as someone who did learn to live as if there were no God apart from the grace and the love of Jesus is to consider God and to think about God and to evaluate God, everything about God depending on how this little season, this slice of life, this very moment is going for me in life. If that's ever been your experience, if that's your constant experience, if that's the struggle that you oscillate between finding faithfulness and peace and joy in God and wondering where He is at any given moment, let me tell you, you are in very good company. In Psalm 13, David who the Bible itself describes as a man after God's own heart, ask God, how long, God, are you going to forgive me? Are you going to hide your face forever? And then in the next five verses, you see David struggle through faith and rest in God again. But that is the experience of everyone who's actually acquainted with the reality of this life. Life is hard. Have you noticed? It's hard. It's filled with disappointment. It's filled with uncertainty. A person I I met just a few weeks ago who I thought, humanly speaking, had every reason to be confident in this world told me in a private conversation, I am always struggling against fear. Every time you say something in the Bible about fear, it helps me and it encourages me because fear is my constant companion and that's what I'm always fighting against. That's the path of discipleship. And in the little book of Ruth, we're going to find that God, in spite of the destructive, anarchic days of the judges, God is still writing the upper story. God is still driving human history. God has not changed His plans. The upper story, God's story, is still writing the lower story. And one question that people would have had in the days of the judges, which we looked at briefly last week, is, will God remain faithful in these wicked times? Of the few people in the days of the judges who who found and trusted God, of that precious remnant of faithful people who still heard His voice, they had to be asking themselves across generations, is God done with us yet? With all of this sin, with all of this disaster, with all of this war, with all of the oppression that the enemies, our enemies heap on us, is God done with us yet? And in all that darkness, like the first ray of sunshine breaking into a dark night, comes the little book of Ruth. You can open your Bibles, if you like, to the book of Ruth. The book of Ruth begins with these words, In the days when the judges ruled. In other words, in the day of Israel's greatest sin, of greatest idolatry. 
in a day where people sinned and suffered for it and eventually in desperation called out to God and God again came to their rescue only to see the next generation repeat the exact same foolish, wicked mistake. In those days when the judges ruled, there was a famine in the land. Now, the book of Judges doesn't refer to famine, but it makes perfect sense in God's judgment that famine would come across Israel. In other words, they've got enemy Enemies ruling over them, and now their land is stricken with famine, probably based on drought. And a man of Bethlehem in Judah went to sojourn in the country of Moab, he and his wife and his two sons. Now, you can read that as the simple historical fact, but if you know a little bit about the names in, the, in this short little narrative, you understand what a desperate situation this already was. In the next few verses, you're going to need a scorecard to keep track of the players, okay? Let me just warn you, you're about to read a whole bunch of names that are difficult to pronounce. But let me tell you what's going on. In the days of the judges, when Israel was at its lowest spiritual point, on top of that, there was a God-directed famine. And a man from Bethlehem, a name known to every Christian, a man from Bethlehem of all places fled to another country, and the country's name was, we just read it, what is it? Moab. Doesn't mean much to you and me, maybe, but Moab, Moab was an implacable, permanent enemy of Israel. The nation of Moab had started in the most revolting of ways. Lot's daughters had gotten him drunk in a cave after they fled from Sodom, and they had sexual relations with their own father. And from one of those children born of incest sprang the nation of Moab. Their name itself represented shame. Their chief god was one who demanded worship by having babies sacrificed to him in fire. In other words, in just a verse, the Bible has told you that in the worst of days came the most desperate of decisions. A man of Israel, we're told, of Bethlehem in Judah, from which Jesus will come thousands of years later, from that little village, a man fled with his family into the land of his enemies simply to eat. He and his wife and his two sons, here come the names. The name of the man was Elimelech and the name of his wife, Naomi. And her name is a reminder of better days because her name means pleasant. Wouldn't you like it if your wife's name was pleasant? Wouldn't you like it even better if she honored the name? Her name was pleasant or pleasantness. And the name of his two sons were Malon and Kilion. They were Ephrathites from Bethlehem in Judah. They went into the country of Moab and remained there, but Limelech, the husband of Naomi, died, and she was left with her two sons. These took Moabite wives. Well, God, bad just got a whole lot worse. Naomi has taken, it wouldn't be her decision in, in those days. Her husband has said, baby, we've got to go. We'll die here. We don't have a choice. We have to go to Moab. And gritting their teeth, they must have gone into Moab. Now disaster. The patriarch of the family, who the man who led them in desperation into this, he dies and his boys respond by doing what? Marrying Moabite women. They're so far outside of the covenant that God had set with them. They're out of the land, they're out of relationship, they're out of worship. They're marrying with 
the most wicked kinds of people, and it gets worse. These took Moabite wives. The name of the one was Orpah, and the name of the other, Ruth. They lived there about 10 years, and both Malon and Kilion died so that the woman was left without her two sons and her husband. Tragedy upon tragedy upon tragedy. This is awful. She has no way home. Widowhood, losing your spouse, every, every grief counselor, every psychologist will tell you that's the greatest kind of grief. Losing your child is right there with it. This woman, in the space of 10 years, has lost her land, has lost her customs, has lost sight of the worship of her God, has seen her boys intermarry with the, one of the most wicked nations on earth. All her husband dies, and then her boys are dead, and now she's left with these two daughters-in-law. How would this woman named Pleasant react? She goes home. She has some land there. She has no one left there, but she does have some land, and she decides to go home. And in the beginning, her daughter-in-laws, she must have been a wonderful woman because her daughters initially go with her. But she says, turn back, my daughters, go your way, for I am too old to have a husband. If I should say I have hope, even if I should have a husband this night and should bear sons, would you therefore wait till they were grown? Would you therefore refrain from marrying? No, my daughters, for it is exceedingly bitter to me for your sake that the hand of the Lord has gone out against me. That's Naomi's understanding of God. She's saying, girls, I'm destitute. There's nothing left for me, but you're young. I understand you love me. I understand we were once kin by marriage, but there's, there's nothing more I can do for you. It's ridiculous. Even if I had a boy tonight, are you really going to wait to marry him? It's over, girls. Go home. And Orpah, she does. Ruth's heart and mind are in a different place. Naomi said, see, your sister-in-law has gone back to her people and to her gods. Return after your sister-in-law. But Ruth said, would you read this with me? Ruth said, do not urge me to leave you or to return from following you. For where you go, I will go. And where you lodge, I will lodge. Your people shall be my people and your God my God. Where you die, I will die and there will I be buried. May the Lord do so to me and more also if anything but death parts me from you. Now folks, this is faith. Naomi must have been pleasant. There's something in her and her relationship which is not explained to us. There is something in her history that draws Ruth's heart to her and she makes an exceedingly hard decision. She makes a decision of faith. She makes a decision to forsake her land, her people, and most importantly, her gods and put herself under the care of the God of Israel. She's going to see if she will be welcomed into the promises that God has made a people that are very unlike her own. And this takes more faith, this shows more trust, more love, more loyalty to God than I can even begin to fathom because Naomi herself is telling the girls that the hand of her God has gone out against her. Naomi's own testimony in that moment is, God has forsaken me, go home. 
Be like your sister-in-law. She's returned to her gods. You should do the same and save yourself. I have nothing here for you. There's nothing I can do for you. What could I possibly do to help you? Ruth, go. And she won't. Your people shall be my people and your God my God. I'm going with you and whatever happens, we'll face it together and I'll die where you die. Wherever you die, that's that's where they're going to bury me too. It's one of the great expressions of faith in the Old Testament. God is at work here even when we can't see it. What's happening here? What is happening in this little tiny book of Ruth? Verse 19, so the two of them went on until they came to Bethlehem. And when they came to Bethlehem, the whole town was stirred because of them. And the women said, is this Naomi? Now, how long has she been away? Ten years. She left, as I'm sure others did, in desperation. And now the whole town is buzzing. You have to understand how small these villages were. This is almost certainly a village of just a few acres. In just a moment, everybody knew Naomi's back. And they can't believe it. Is this Naomi? She said to them, do not call me Naomi, which means pleasant. Call me Mara. And that name, her new name, the name she gives herself, has a whole other meaning. Mara means bitter. What she's saying, when you left, when I left here, you knew me as a pleasant woman. Don't call me that anymore. It brings up too many painful memories. Do not call me Naomi. Call me Mara, for the Almighty has dealt very bitterly with me. I went away full, and the Lord has brought me back empty. Why call me pleasant? Why call me Naomi when the Lord has testified against me and the Almighty has brought calamity upon me? Wow. One way I know that by the Bible is the Word of God is how accurately and faithfully with complete, raw candor and truth it reports the experience of the people of God as they try to walk through a hard life with Him. There's no hiding. There's no varnishing. There's no pretending. Naomi's understanding of God at this point is he has turned against me. I wonder what else she thought. Did she think she was just collateral damage in a nation that has turned its back on God in the days of the judges? Does she look back and rue the day she listened to her husband, didn't speak up respectfully a little bit more to try to stay in the land that God had promised to them? This is the promised land after all. There is sin in it and there is famine now, but... Shouldn't we maybe hang on a little bit longer? I wonder if she questioned or blamed herself as a mother when she saw her sons marry these pagan women. It's hard for me not to imagine, and that's all I'm doing. I'm trying to put myself into her situation, as hard as that is across the centuries, and one man trying to think as an ancient woman might. Did I fail as a mother that they would marry these Moabite woman, did God kill them because of their faithlessness? And is it my fault? We can leave my speculation, though, and my trying to understand one person's thinking, and we can read her words for ourselves and understand exactly what she thought of God. God sent me away full. I had a husband and I had two boys, and he's brought me back empty. 
When you last saw me, it was pleasant for me under God's hand. Now he has turned his hand against me. He has judged me. He has brought me back empty. And you should call me now, you should call me bitter. That's my new identity. That's my new relationship with God. Now what the book of Ruth is going to start telling you in the providence and the care of God is that God's guidance is often concealed in crisis. See, my natural thinking about God is to think that my circumstances and somehow have changed his character, his plans, his loyalty, and his love, and they don't. He is a promise maker and he is a promise keeper. The upper story continues to write the lower story, and I'm not exactly sure how all this fits together, but God is sovereign and he directs the affairs of his people always. And for us to ask in any moment, no matter how deep the crisis, where is the care and the providence of God, is very much like a fish asking where the water is. We're surrounded by it. We're in the middle of it. We cannot escape it. We cannot escape him and his faithfulness and his love. Ruth appears early in the story as someone who had the beginnings of the understanding that Naomi could have had. Because she said in Ruth 1.16, do not urge me to leave you or to return from following you. Where you go, I will go. Where you lodge, I will lodge. Your people shall be my people and your God, my God. Ruth continues, the book of Ruth continues. Now Naomi had a relative of her husband's, a worthy man of the clan of Elimelech, whose name was Boaz. And Ruth the Moabite And whoever wrote this book is including her nationality to help you understand and remember just how awkward and difficult her situation was. Ruth the Moabite is now in the land of Israel, and Ruth the Moabite said to Naomi, let me go to the field and glean among the ears of grain after him in whose sight I shall find favor. You see, they've come to the barley harvest, and they are two widowed, desperate, poor women. And the young one says, let me go to work. It's harvest time. Let me, let me get out there and mix it up and maybe someone will be nice to me and they'll give me the chance to glean in their fields. That doesn't sound like much to urban dwellers like ourselves. Let me try to paint you a word picture that might bring it home. Imagine a woman of the Islamic faith in a full burqa suddenly appearing in a cornfield in Iowa and getting in the field in the midst of the combines and starting to take corn for herself. What's going to happen in that situation? Someone's going to call the cops and say, hey, you know that slogan, see something, say something, we see something. (laughs) We don't know what's going on here. We don't know where this woman came from, but there's a woman covered head to toe in black. Her face is covered and she's, she's harvesting our corn. And it's not that we need it, it's just strange. Could you come out and take a look? This pagan woman is going into a land that does not belong to her. She is identified immediately in this tiny little village as someone from a pagan nation, an implacable enemy of Israel. Naomi says, go, said to her, go, my daughter. So she set out and went and gleaned in the field after the reapers. Now, what's she doing here? She is making herself as humble and unobtrusive as she possibly can. She's not getting ahead of the men and the people gathering in the harvest. She's getting in behind them. 
of whatever they've left, whatever they've forgotten, whatever they've decided isn't worth plucking, that's what she's after. In God's law, he had told them not to harvest the whole field, to leave the corners for people who were poor and for foreigners among them. He had made a compassionate provision for people like Ruth, but it's one thing to read it in the law and expect somebody else to compassionately follow it. Here's God's providence, here's God's hand in the lower story. She set out and went and gleaned in the field after the reapers, and she happened to come to the part of the field belonging to Boaz, who was of the clan of Elimelech. See that little phrase there, she happened to? You know what the narrator's telling you there? She didn't plan it. She was just working her way across, seeing who smiled. Wherever she felt a little more welcome and a little more, a little safer, that's where she gleaned. And she just happened to end up in the field of Boaz. Behold, Boaz, who is in their clan, he's part of their family, a distant relative. Boaz came from Bethlehem and he said to the reapers, the Lord be with you. And they answered, the Lord bless you. The Boaz said to his young man who was in charge of the reapers, whose young woman is this? I love the stories of the Bible. Hey, who's that? It's not an accusing question. It is a curious question. Whose girl is that? Whose daughter is that? Whose who's wife? She doesn't look like she's from around here. No, she certainly wasn't. The servant who was in charge of the reapers answered, she is the young Moabite woman who came back with Naomi from the country of Moab. Did you see that he said it twice? Everybody knows how awkward and strange this is. Oh, that's the Moabite from Moab. Listen, when you're reading the stories of the Bible, slow down. Every detail matters. The master author wastes no words. He's trying to help you see the desperation of the situation. She said, please let me glean and gather among the sheaves after the reapers. So she came and she has continued from early morning until now except for a short rest. Now what does that tell you about Ruth? She's a worker. She's a peasant girl from Moab, but she is doing her very best. She has entrusted herself to a God she barely knows. There is something in the heart and the memory and the first story of her mother-in-law who now calls herself literally a bitter woman that has drawn Ruth's heart to trust this God and in spite of Naomi's own testimony about him to entrust him herself to his sovereign care. And she's doing her best. And when you're walking along with God and you don't know where he is, the best you can do is trust that he is there and do your best. And to continue walking as faithfully as you know how in a difficult situation, Boaz is going to respond. His heart is going to be drawn to this. Then Boaz said to Ruth, now listen, my daughter. Do not go to glean in another field or leave this one, but keep close to my young women. Let your eyes be on the field that they are reaping and go after them. Have I not charged the young men not to touch you? And when you are thirsty, go to the vessels and drink what the young men have drawn. What's he saying? You're safe here. I'm going to take care of you. None of these men are going to harass you. You stick close to the servant girls who are ahead of you. 
And when it's time for refreshments, my men are going to make provision for you go and you confidently drink and get your rest. She understands the kindness and the love that's been shown to her. She fell on her face, bowing to the ground, and said to him, Why have I found favor in your eyes that you should take notice of me since I am a foreigner? But Boaz answered, All that you have done for your mother-in-law since the death of your husband has been fully told to me, and how you left your father and mother in your native land and came to a people that you did not know before. Here's his prayer for her, and it will be answered. The Lord repay you for what you have done, and a full reward be given you by the Lord, the God of Israel, under whose wings you have come to take refuge. See, Boaz understands what's going on here spiritually. She has come to God for refuge. And Boaz, in the lower story, with his just barely getting a grip on the circumstances, he's participating in it. Naomi is literally a self-described bitter woman who has nearly given up hope that God will ever do anything again for her family. But Ruth has expressed faith and her relative Boaz, he understands it. And he says, may God protect you because you've drawn close to him. She said, I have found favor in your eyes, my Lord, for you have comforted me and spoken kindly to your servant, though I am not one of your servants. The book of Ruth tells me that as you walk with God, sometimes even wondering where He is, God's kindness sometimes will come from unexpected places and unexpected people. You can count on it. Life is hard and death comes crashing in and illness and job loss and wayward children and all kinds of things can intervene in your life and make you question whether God exists and whether He still loves you, but He does. His providence is constant and loyal. And one of the ways He will encourage you and show you His kindness and His loyalty along the way is to send unexpected people that you did not know to love you and to remind you and to keep you on the path. If you think back across your story of following Jesus, I bet you can find that blessings and love and loyalty and comfort came from unexpected people that came at just the right time to remind you of God's goodness because I know this. I heard this from an old British Bible teacher years and years ago when I was still a college student. He said, wherever God sends you, you're going to meet his friends. God does work out ahead of you. And sin has wrecked the world, and there will be suffering and trouble in it. But in the middle of all that, God is going to send kindness, and He is going to send friendship to you from unexpected places. Now is the book of Ruth, this short little verse, this short little book that has God's name in it about literally in one-third of the verses. Naomi's going to do her part. She's beginning to wake up to the idea that maybe God is not yet done with her and her daughter-in-law. And it's going to lead into one of the strangest courtships that you'll ever read. If you read the book of Ruth, you know what I'm talking about. Naomi's concerned. Naomi's almost given up on herself, but she has, help, she has hope for Ruth. And the book of Ruth says this, Then Naomi, her mother-in-law, said to her, My daughter, why should I not seek rest for you, that it may be well with you? Is not Boaz our relative with whose young women you were? See, he is winnowing barley tonight at the threshing floor. Now this was a large, open, public space where people brought in what they had harvested. And the wind started to blow at night. They would thresh. You can think of it as thrashing. 
Sometimes people would do it, more often animals, shake everything loose so the seed would come out of the grain. And they would take the grain, which is what they were after, home. Boaz is winnowing barley tonight at the threshing floor. Wash therefore and anoint yourself and put on your cloak and go down to the threshing floor, but do not make yourself known to the man until he has finished eating and drinking. There is some old wisdom. <laughs> Ladies, if you are having dealings with a man, it's better for you and for him if he's well fed first. <laughs> the customs are different. People don't change. We're not so different from these ancient people. Now what is going to take place is a human plan for hope. And it's the most desperate thing you've ever read in your life. Look, when he lies down, observe the place where he lies, then go and uncover his feet and lie down and he will tell you what to do. Ladies, our times are different. How would you like those courtship instructions? <laughs> he's going to be working all day and he's going to get paid at the threshing floor. But when he lays down to protect what is his after a full day of work and a good meal, here's what you're going to do, dear. You're going to uncover his feet and lay down at them. He'll tell you what to do next. What are you doing? Now granted, these customs are very removed from ours, but Ruth's faith is still very evident. She replied, all that you say I will do. So she went down to the threshing floor and did just as her mother-in-law had commanded her. When Boaz had eaten and drunk and his heart was merry, he went to lie down at the end of the heap of grain. Then she came softly and uncovered his feet and lay down. Catch this. At midnight, the man was startled and turned over, and behold, a woman lay at his feet. Yeah, no wonder they put the exclamation point there, right? <laughs> this is not how it normally goes down at the threshing floor. There are people all over this place. He is not expecting someone to meekly lay down at his feet. It's a cultural signal. It's an invitation to marriage. He said, who are you? And she answered, I am Ruth, your servant. Spread your wings over your servant, for you are a redeemer. Oh, man. This is a love story. And the men kind of flinch. I tell you something about love stories? Every person on earth wants to be part of one. Women want to be beloved and treasured. Men want to be the rescuers, the providers, the protectors. She is telling him in a desperate, gracious, humble offer, you're our hope. You're a redeemer. See, they were selling their land. Naomi had some ancestral land that belonged to her family, but she has no husband and she has no sons, and the land has to stay in their name. Now she's a widow. Out of need, she's going to sell it. And the only hope for her posterity is to keep this in the family. That's why the law of Moses and the customs of the people had developed to have this kind of a marriage relationship. That someone close within the clan would marry and preserve the wealth and preserve the name of those who had died. And Ruth is very humbly telling him, 
We're desperate. You're our redeemer. You're the one who's going to buy us back out of destitution. If you're willing to do this act of kindness for me and my family, put your cloak over me. I'm at your feet because I need your help. I want you to put your cloak over me as a sign of your protection and your love. And it's the craziest plan you've ever read. This is a woman asking a man for marriage. This is a Moabite speaking to an Israelite. This is a servant asking the boss if she'll marry, if he'll marry her. (laughs) And he said, may you be blessed by the Lord, my daughter. You have made this last kindness greater than the first and that you have not gone after young men, whether poor or rich. And now, my daughter, do not fear. I will do for you all that you ask for all my fellow townsmen. Know that you are a worthy woman. And now it is true that I am a redeemer. Yet there is a redeemer nearer than I. There is a relative closer than I that has the first opportunity to do this, is what he's saying. Remain tonight and in the morning if he will redeem you. Good. Let him do it. But if he is not willing to redeem you, then as the Lord lives, I will redeem you. Lie down until morning. What is this story in the Bible showing us? It's showing us people at the edge of hope who are not sure if God is still loving and loyal and providing in the midst of a desperate, sinful situation in which Naomi, at least, would have questioned whether God would still be loving and faithful to her. In fact, she doesn't think so. Ruth understands that the promises were never made to her. Just to recap who these people are, Naomi was a destitute Jewish widow who had fled to Moab. Ruth was from Moab, seemingly far from God's promises. And we'll learn later as we continue to read our Bibles, Boaz was the son of Rahab, the prostitute from Jericho. What does this tell me? That God's providence, God's loving care, God's kindness, the power of God to continue writing the upper story, even as our lower stories, the stories of our lives seem so pointless and hopeless, there are no unimportant people and there are no insignificant times. We would do well to remember that. Do not think that your situation that you find yourself in this morning where God seems distant and you seem to be living life on your own, as the song said, that God's providence, His intervention, His love, His kindness is meant for other people but not for you. No, the book of Ruth is a testimony to Israel first that there is no circumstance beyond His faithfulness and there are no people beyond His love and care. Ruth is a Moabitess, and that is exactly the point. Even Moab will be blessed by the God of Israel when they trust Him. Ruth assured her relationship with God and her place in the upper story when she said for the first time, your people are going to be my people and your God will be my God. That simple faith put this desperate peasant woman from a foreign pagan land into God's grace. If you've read the rest of the story... Boaz goes to the gate of the city, and he says, there's some land, he says to the near redeemer, and the guy says, I'll take it. And Boaz says, that's fine, but when you do, understand there's a woman to marry as well. And he said, I I can't do that. I'll wreck my own inheritance. Can't risk it, don't have the money, doesn't sound like a good idea. And his name's not known. 
I think that's intentional. He had the opportunity to participate in this story, and he wouldn't. So Boaz moved quickly. And the book of Ruth tells us at the end, so Boaz took Ruth, and she became his wife. And he went into her, and the Lord gave her conception. See, God's been at work this whole time. (laughs) Naomi, the bitter woman, has been desperately plotting and planning. She's concocted this crazy scheme. Ruth, in her simple faithfulness, has gone out a peasant woman among people who have caused to hate her, and she's worked as best she can. In the scheming and the faithfulness and the doubting and the fear and the accusing and in the simple faith of Ruth and everything in between Ruth and Naomi, God has been at work the whole time. The Lord gave her conception and she bore a son. Then the women said to Naomi, blessed be the Lord who has not left you this day without a redeemer and may his name be renowned in Israel. He shall be to you a restorer of life and a nourisher of your old age. For your daughter-in-law who loves you, who is more to you than seven sons, has given birth to him. Then Naomi took the child and laid him on her lap and became his nurse. And the women in the neighborhood gave him a name, saying, A son has been born to Naomi. They named him Obed. He was the father of Jesse. The father of who? King David is two generations away. God is at work. What's happening here? Obed, Jesse, David. Why does the book of Ruth end with this genealogy? Because it wants to tell you, even in the darkest times, God wanted Israel and He wants us to know later that God will provide a Redeemer. And Obed, whose name simply means a worker, he is a son to work the land. The book of Ruth closes with the name of of King David because it wants us to know all these years later that from King David will appear a greater king and a greater redeemer. His name will be Jesus and he will be a son to redeem the world. Ruth's name is going to appear only once more in the Bible. Do you know where it is? It's tucked into Matthew chapter 1 verse 5. Ruth the Moabitess. The widow with no God, no hope, to whom were made no promises, she ended up in the line of Jesus. God will provide a Redeemer. And on the other side of an empty cross and an empty grave, can I tell you the very best news that anybody could ever give you? God has provided the Redeemer. His name is Jesus. He takes the sin and the sorrow and the suffering and all the failure of the world of disloyal, unfaithful, disobedient, disregarding people upon Himself. He suffers as our substitute and our Savior, and He covers us with His love so that you are safe and you are provided for. So I don't know what else may be going on in your life, and you may have, as people do for me every single week, hard questions that all involve this simple idea. Where is God in all of this? I can tell you this on the basis of God's love and the authority of His Word and the promises He kept that He wrote down for us so that we would know Him. He is at work in your life, and He loves you. And the greatest proof of that is not found in your present day circumstance, but in the historical fact that He provided a Redeemer for you, that you may be saved. That's why Paul will later write to the Corinthians, in Jesus all the promises of God are yes. He delivered. He came through. 
He provided. He saves. He redeems. And you can trust him. So all these years later, let us say with this simple girl that God's people will be our people. That no amount of suffering, no amount of trouble will ever dissuade us of his great love. And that God, no matter what may come, God will be our God. Could I invite you to pray with me now? Thanks so much for joining us on this edition of Cross Points. If you have any questions about what you just heard, please call our church office at 714-848-5511. If you are nearby next Sunday, we have services at 9 and 10.30 a.m. Visitors are always welcome at Crosspoint, and we hope you'll choose to worship with us when you're near the Huntington Beach community.